Welcome back, GPS to God. We are so glad that you are here. Make sure you rate, review, subscribe. You guys already know that. You can email us, podcast at parkwaybc.net. Find us on Instagram. Short introduction today, because we have a, a special guest. We're going to get right to it. I'm Daniel. We have Stefano, Ryan, and Zach with us. It took four of us to wrangle this one guy. He's going to give you a little bit of uh, history. We'll see if you can guess. Four-year starter on the bas- uh, Vanderbilt basketball team. That's a big hint right there. Four-year yeah. starter. He's a trick shot master with over 50 million views. <laughs> Multiple state titles as a head basketball coach, multiple Coach of the Year honors, Nike basketball director for over a decade, best-selling author of Elevated, TV and radio basketball analyst, hosted his own radio show. He is the winner of the All-State SEC Basketball Legends Award, has been featured on Good Morning America, Sports Center Top 10, USA Today Sports, and others. He's a Christ follower, a husband, a father, motivational speaker, helping to shape leaders of all ages and all walks of life. Please welcome Mr. Drew Maddox. <laughs> Might be the longest intro we've had. That was, yeah. uh, that was uh, that's impressive. That's Dude, awesome. I'm, I'm out of breath. What yeah. am I supposed to say to that, Daniel? Just, uh, all, all that really means is I'm really old. Okay, let's just that uh, as a disclaimer. Uh I guess you could also establish that I'm a, a jack of all trades and a master of nothing. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Uh, I can multitask, I guess, a little bit, keep balls juggling in the air. But uh, anyway, with all seriousness, uh, just thank you for having me this morning. It, it is a distinct privilege and honor to get to be with you. And certainly was so thankful for our divine introduction at the Memphis Grizzlies game a couple of months ago. And so for from that introduction to be sitting with you guys here on this podcast, I'm honored and privileged and, and uh, excited to be here. Well, we appreciate that. We are honored. We are so happy that you are here. And um, we know this is going to be great. There's going to be a lot of good information that comes out. But first, we're, we're going we're gonna to stump you right off the beginning, all right? Okay. right at the start. Brand new segment for us. Things Drew will not remember. Things Drew will not remember. So, to my right, Mr. Stefano Patterson right here. He played against you in high school. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) He doesn't look that old. A very, very small blip on the Drew Maddox radar. So, where, tell them where an, you played. An insignificant blip. I played at Davidson Academy. Okay. Uh, One of my uh, only two dunks in my career came against Davidson Academy. Yes, <laughs> yes. I think those two What's dunks it? that you had, I think that was probably On you? 30 combined that y'all co- collectively, that y'all's team had against us over two games. <laughs> We did have one guy that literally fell out of the rafters every, you know, every time down the yes, court. Yes, so he, yes, he, yes. He was Ron Mercer could could, uh, yes. could get up. Yes, one and of the tell me to throw bad alley oop passes because yes. the look better. Yes, yes. A good a good friend of mine that has been on this podcast remembers this story vividly that we talk about was a fast break that you had the ball and um, behind him he heard the um the uh, the sentence off the boards drew <laughs> <laughs> to which you threw it off the backboard and uh he came he just saw just something behind him that came and just 
<laughs> dunk the ball. But the one of the best, the one of the best high school basketball teams. That good pasture team was was amazing. Lot lots of talent. So <laughs> starting with you. Uh, a quick subplot to the story was Eddie Greer, your coach. Eddie Greer was my coach. I know he we just, just recently lost yes. uh, Coach Greer, and so yes. uh, I went and saw his family at um, in Hendersonville. You know, yes. just, uh, what a, what an outstanding and incredible man. We sat behind him at church okay. on the right center aisle at Hendersonville First Baptist Church my entire life, and okay. we recently lost him, and he went to be with the Lord a couple yes. of years ago. Yes, he was a good, he was a great man. I only had him. I was um he was my coach my sophomore year, sophomore, junior and senior year, so he was a he was a great man. He never had a bad day. I can just remember all his his sayings and everything like that just like it was yesterday. It was very cool at the visitation. They had a t-shirt with like all his little his little sayings that he used to say during basketball and during during class and stuff. So, so it's a great man that we lost. Yeah. So one more thing that Drew's not going to re- remember. He might remember part of it, but I was a rising freshman going to a summer basketball camp at Antioch High School. And one day we had a guest speaker, and that guest speaker just happened to be one Drew Maddox, <laughs> <laughs> who at the time was playing at Vanderbilt. I don't know if he remembers driving way out to the – nothingness of Antioch back in the 90s. But I do. That's the old Antioch High School on Blue Hole Road. So Correct. I absolutely remember Mario Moore. Yes. Yes. For sure. So one thing I remember about that camp is Drew showed up. We were eating lunch in the bleachers. Drew showed up. There was maybe, maybe 10 minutes or so before lunch finished, and Drew was just out on the floor shooting while we finished lunch. Never missed a shot. And as a rising freshman, that amazed me to no end. <laughs> and then later, uh, you know, when Drew was talking to, to all the campers, he kind of explained his work ethic and, and mentality, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But, but uh, stump Drew. Things Drew will not remember. So that's <laughs> – just gets easier from here. Now, now you're on the spotlight. Daniel, who who was the high school? Who was the coach then at Antioch High School? Um, Harrison, Coach Harrison. Uh, I don't remember his first name. Okay, I, I don't remember him either. Huh? Okay. I, I don't. He was there just a another year or two. Uh, you know, the following two seasons after that camp, I think, and then he was gone. They had another coach come in. So I got you. Okay. But we're gonna um, talk about basketball a little bit. But really, basketball has kind of been an avenue for Drew to branch out into so many different things. You heard a list of some of the things he has done and accomplished and been rewarded with. But, um, Drew, I heard an interview you did one time uh, where you said you were maybe 12 years old and you would go shoot basketball at home for out, you know, go to practice, come home and just shoot hundreds of shots, shoot for hours because – you thought other kids were practicing and you did not want to get outworked. Can you talk a little bit about that mindset and how that started at an early age? Yeah. You know, um, at, at an early, early age, uh, in fact, all the way back to kindergarten, uh, Miss Sandy Venable at Nanny Berry elementary school in Hendersonville asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, as, as my friends around me were drawing pictures of astronauts and firemen and policemen, I drew myself in a Vanderbilt basketball uniform. Uh, wearing the number 45. 
if, if you know about our family and, and you've been in Nashville for a period of time, you know that my father and my grandfather both played basketball at Vanderbilt. So uh, it's, it's an important part. The school, uh, athletics, athletics at Vanderbilt are an important part of the fabric of our family. And so even at an early age, I knew that was something I wanted to do. And so uh, just every single day when I woke up, I was chasing that dream. I, I began to align my habits uh, the way that I, I did school, the things that I ate, the way I took care of my body, uh, much less the way that I worked out and skill developed on the basketball court. Everything was in alignment with that with that vision. I believe that was something I controlled. Uh, that was a controllable that was totally within my sphere of influence that I could um, control how hard I worked. And it became a math game to me, quite frankly. I was like, you know, there's this many spots available for Division One athletics. Uh, there's this many spots at Vanderbilt University, just call it 12 on a roster, three or four coming in every year. Now we know the transfer portal and there's a lot more fluidity than back in the mid nineties. But back then it was like, I could control the effort that I could go and, and try to attain one of those spots. And so, yeah, I, I worked like crazy, uh, almost uh, had a maniac work ethic to the point where I would you know, even think when I got into my room at night, what you're describing, uh, Daniel, is, you know, on the West Coast, they were two hours behind and maybe somebody was still at the gym or still getting shots up. And I would get back out of bed, put my shoes back on and and get back out and go shoot, you know, 100 or 200 more shots, even if it was freezing cold outside. Um, I, that was something that I was going to control and nobody was going to outdo me in pursuit of that dream. And that's really something that, carries over into other aspects of your life, but anyone's life, that work ethic, that's something I try and talk to my kids about. You know, you're not going to be the most talented at everything you do, but the effort you put in, the work habits you put in, you control that. Nobody can change that. Nobody can take that away. And I'm going to caveat this next question. Any athlete, any person that plays in the SEC is talented but you were maybe not the most physically gifted ball player in the SEC. You're, you're being very kind right now. Well, you know, we, <laughs> I would say very much on the low side. Of we, we, we want you to come back one day, maybe. So, but I mean, this, this determination, this work ethic, I mean, that's kind of what propelled you into, and you had a goal that you were working towards, but how does that cross over into sports that's something kind of where you are now current we're going to jump around a lot drew i'm sorry but that's kind of where you are currently how does that transfer over into other aspects of life well i i think you know every single day when your two feet hit the ground uh we all have divine purpose and we all have divine giftings that should be in alignment what impact and what contribution are you making on the world and so there's a lot of things that i cannot control there's a lot of things externally conditions, environmental uh, situations that I, I have no effect on. Um, but I can't control three things and I control three things. And I, I wake up every day when my two feet hit the ground and I say to myself, let's eat, let's eat, E, effort. What's my effort? Is my motor kicked on? Am I pursuing and chasing uh, with alignment what my dreams and aspirations and where Jesus is calling me to make an impact? A, what's my attitude? Am I bringing positivity into every situation are people better when they collide with my story uh, is my positivity is my mindset of overcoming you have a growth mindset you know all of those kind of things is it contagious is your attitude worth catching you know because it, it is a contagious so effort attitude 
And then T is either togetherness or teammate, whatever T you want to put in there. Uh, I'm a huge acronym guy. So I, I control how unselfish I am. I control the way that I love. Uh, there's nobody that can that can um, bring be a detriment to that. Uh, I'm vertically aligned with my creator who, who he's created me to be. And then as an expression of that, and the way that that manifests is the way that I should go love, serve, and care for other people. And so when my two feet ate the ground, let's eat, effort, attitude, be a great teammate. And I've tried to instill that into the teams that I coach and obviously my coworkers now at Ashley Furniture. No, I, I, I was just writing down over here. I mean, uh, to visually see that acronym and uh, how that's lived out in your life is, uh, I mean, that should be an example and an encouragement to others. Well, I, 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 once we are on here for a little bit, you'll you'll get to know that uh, I, I'm I'm a I'm a guy that believes in the power of three. I mean, I think it's scientifically proven that people remember things as they come in bundles of three. And so you'll hear me use acronyms or letters, or maybe I've done enough or been in enough uh, Southern Baptist churches to hear enough preachers <laughs> that deliver, you know, the power of three. But uh, I, I just have learned over the course of my life of leading basketball camps, leading our teams, being with teenagers. Um, you know, keep it simple. And uh, that's something that everybody can grab hold of. And certainly it's, it's had a positive impact on me. I'm changing gears a little bit, going back to the summer of uh, 95, I guess, basketball camp at Antioch. One of the things you talked about was you were guarding Tony Delk, who was a very good player at University of Kentucky. And something along the lines of you were not supposed to be able to touch him, right? Like he was above you and, uh, you know, nobody expected you to be able to do anything against him defensively. And I forget the number of points you held him to, held him to a, a low scoring total. But one of the things you said was, don't tell me what I cannot do. And it kind of goes back to that mindset of, of, you know, I control me, I control effort, energy, all that kind of stuff. You, someone else, should not be able to limit me. I'm going to go achieve what I can achieve. I remember that as a, a ninth grade kid, but it really didn't sink in for me, that kind of attitude until later. But can you kind of maybe go a little deeper for somebody who, who – never thought of don't tell me what I can't do in a positive way right sure sure yeah you know I, I, I I'm just naive enough to believe that that you can do anything you put your mind and heart to and I think Paul wrote about it in Philippians 4 13 I know it's a well-stated verse and well-documented and all of those kind of things but I never played a basketball game without Philippians 4 13 on my toes uh, simply for what you're describing in that don't tell me I can't do something don't tell me I've I want or, or, or am not able to, there are no ceilings. What you're describing as a ceiling is the next floor to me. If I hit rock bottom, it's a new foundation for me. I'm always in the game. I'll always have a fighting chance. As long as I'm breathing, I got a chance. As long as there's time on that scoreboard, we still can compete. And so, uh, especially going into Rupp Arena, my, my very first start at Vanderbilt, was at Rupp Arena, uh, uh, and obviously Kentucky was very, very good, but um, I, I obviously grew up knowing who Tony Duck was here in Tennessee. He's from Haywood County, played at Brown, and from Brownsville, Tennessee, but um, very familiar with who they were, familiar with the tradition of Rupp Arena, what Kentucky represented, um, and, and yeah, I, I had the butterflies and all the nerves, but I, I do believe there's, there's just, there's power uh, if you can get to the place 
where you truly believe that you can be an overcomer. And I don't care what the obstacles were, Kentucky, Rupp Arena, Tony Delk, me being a freshman, those guys being upperclassmen, it did not matter to me. Um, we, we, were, we were going to compete and we always had a chance. And so, yeah, so that, that's just the way I've lived my life. I, maybe it's because as you stated, I, I didn't have the most physical attributes. I wasn't physically gifted. I couldn't jump as high, run as fast. So I was scrapping and clawing for everything that I got. Um, but, but that's just the way that I live my life, that I believe there's always an opportunity. There's always a different way. There's always a new angle. Um, there's always a repositioning. And even if you are um, you know, experiencing hardship, struggle, or uncertainty, you know, there's still a way. You can still figure out a way to overcome. And so that's just the way that I live my life. And I hope that the people that I'm with on my team or that I've coached, they would um, you know, hopefully take on that same mindset, uh, having been around me over the years. Well, it's a contagious mindset too. One, you know, once somebody overcomes that mental hurdle the first time. It's like, oh, okay. Well, let me let me take one more step. That you know, it's contagious attitude, positive or negative. However, it is they're both contagious. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's Winnie the Pooh's best friends. I mean, to simplify, <laughs> are you a Tigger or are you an Eeyore? I, I would ask our team all the time. You get to choose. Right. Um, now, now life's going to come at you, and we're all going to handle things in different ways. And 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 all of us, you know, fear, uncertainty, doubt. It's all relative to each of us, but that's why it's so important to be around a body of like-minded, like-hearted people that can help you in that contagious, you know, culture that needs to be set. So you can be an overcomer and you can be an uplifter. Your mind is your biggest weapon. You get to choose if it works for you or works against you, right? So, but yeah, that's a it's a great mindset to have in in sports, in your professional life, marriage, all that kind of stuff. So. Tell me, just I know, just with your family and just your career, um, all your teams that you've coached when you were at CPA and all that, which we'll get into that. Um, everything has been grounded like in your faith. Just tell me about your your Christian walk, becoming a Christian. I know you come from a great family, obviously, um, but just tell me about your you know your christian walk and how that started and yeah i i was very blessed stefano to be you know as you mentioned just in a family that um you know our personal relationship with jesus christ was the most important thing it wasn't just being in church it wasn't just when the doors opened we were there it was more about an intimate walk with jesus christ and my parents were so incredible at reinforcing that you know every single day to the point where you know, I did accept Jesus as a teenager um, into my life. And as most people, you have your your days where you you walk outside of that relationship. But, you know, I, I just began to understand as I was getting older, I had some incredible mentors and coaches, by the way, and pastors that invested in me alongside my family, that I began to really understand um, the unconditional way that grace was extended to us via the cross and the way that Jesus truly loved me. Because I grew up... Um, <laughs> you know, you guys know my mindset. So d don't tell me I can't do something, you know, I I'm going to overcome, you know, we're going to compete, but also there's a detriment side to that or a shadow side of that, where you beat yourself up if you don't perform or you beat yourself up if you don't live up to the expectation to the point where you feel like nobody loves you much less, you know, God still loves you. And I, 
I would go through those days in that battle and I began to understand that that grace was extended and, and really understanding as I became a more mature believer. Um, I, I really matured into this mantra for my life um, found from when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandments, which was, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength and love others as yourself. And so we developed that and broke it down into four words. So my foundation of my life is Christ-centered, others-focused. Um, everything is a wellspring of outflow of that, that foundation. How does that play out? It moves into my mission statement, which is to pick up the trash, leave people, places, and things better than the way that you found them. That when people come together, our stories collide, we ultimately should be better for doing life on life together. That should be the effect we have on each other. Um, and then I think when you drop it down to the next level, in, in order to um, really love people, you got to understand the parable of the talents. And in a world where we compare and compete, and, and I really identify myself as either better or worse as I measure against your story, uh, you, you really got to view life through the lens of the parable of talents. Whether you've been given five, two, or one, every single person that we're going to interact with today was divinely created and wonderfully made. And they have something of unique value. And they need to um, feel valued. Um, they were valued enough to, that Jesus went to the cross for them. That's all I need to know. And so I just want to make sure that as we are Christ-centered, others-focused, as we pick up the trash and seek to lead people better, that people truly do feel like they're valued. And it's not done through uh, an evaluation system like the world of, of comparing and competing that status is given because of athletics or how much money I have or what my title is. But there's divine value because... I'm a human being that was created for purpose, on purpose, with purpose. Mm. And that's ultimately what I'm trying to do every day. That's great. So not to or to piggyback off of your question, um, just you're going to school locally. So you're going to Vanderbilt. It's here in Nashville. At that time, do you feel like that was a benefit to you as far as staying local and, you know, with, with your spiritual background and everything? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. You know, when I was uh, being recruited, um, obviously – my dad and my grandfather, as I mentioned, and, and all of my, most of my family, my big, you know, circle uh, all went to Vanderbilt. My older brother went to undergrad and law school at Vanderbilt, was there when I was there. My younger sister went to Vanderbilt. Um, she married my roommate, my college roommate. So he was <laughs> at Vanderbilt, all of our uncles and cousins. But all that to say, we had great relationships in this community. Um, and then as I was growing up at Good Pasture, people fell in love with the story and the friendship of me and Ron Mercer. And so people began to really um, identify in different aspects of that friendship and that relationship. So I, I'm growing up, people know our family, they fall in love with this story. And then I, I land uh, at Vanderbilt on West End. And I'll tell you this, the greatest advice my dad gave me as it related to that experience was, he said, Drew, never say no, never say no. If, if, if somebody asks whether it's a kindergarten classroom to go read in, or whether it's, you know, a business to get to go speak at or any high school basketball camp, say yes, because you never know what relationships are being built. You never know what God's building you up for and what he's getting you ready for. And you'll never know what the return on that investment will be. And not that I did it in a transaction sense. I hope as I went through that experience, it was transformative in that I was doing it, you know, with a purpose to love people to life. But um, 
I just said yes. And, and the people that I met growing up in this community, he just said, if you're going to grow up here and, and raise a family, you're, you're, you're going to want to be at Vanderbilt rather than Indiana or Wake Forest or Virginia, Florida, some of these other places I was looking at. And I will tell you this, there's not a day, not one day in my life since I finished, and that's been 24 years ago, that playing at Vanderbilt, the experience, the relationships, being in this community, this town, our family, there's not been a reciprocal benefit for the investment of those years. And just think about that. I only played there four years. I played there four years, 24 years ago. And still to this day, the, the, the way that people have extended love to me because of those years, it's something that, that is uh, just an enormous blessing and encouragement to me and my family. So you had him, Daniel. All you had to do was walk up to him and ask him for the podcast. He was not going to say no. I, yeah, and that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. The answer is yes. What's the question? I mean, so we're right. bigger. Just tell me what the question is, and I'm there. I'm sorry it took this long to get here. That's right. So a little background behind the scenes. Zach and I and a couple other people went to a Memphis Grizzlies game back in January. Great seats. Zach and I had some great seats. Thank you, Zach. But we, I saw Drew. So before the game, we were in, in the little concession area. We were walking out. Zach and I were walking out. Drew was walking in. And I was like, hey, man, that was Drew Maddox. And he's like, yeah. So we sit down. I'm looking. I said, man, I, I wonder where he's sitting. So I spend the entire first quarter <laughs> looking for <laughs> Drew just – I was starstruck. Starstruck. Steph Curry or John Morant. Yeah. I, I got pictures of those guys in warm-ups. I was good. But, you know, I, w I was immediately transformed back to a ninth-grade kid. So, halftime rolls around. We're, you know, waiting for the, the game to start back. I just happened to look about four seats down, and Drew was right there. He'd been sitting right there the entire time. And I'm, I told Zach, I said, I'm going to talk to him. Here we go. So, I introduced myself. He didn't know me. But, uh, you know, said, hey, we got a podcast. Would love for you to come on. Can I email you? Whatever. He was nice enough to give me some contact information. And then uh, a couple minutes later, I felt really, uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, affirmed maybe when some, a, a friend of Drew's came down and Drew turned around to me and said, hey, I'm going to be on this guy's podcast. He'll take our picture. <laughs> so he gave me his phone. <laughs> gave me his phone. Let me take a picture of him and his friend. And I told Zach, I was like, I made it. You know, here we go. <laughs> the, the funny thing to that, that night, I almost got thrown out of the FedEx forum that night because oh. of John Morant's dad, T. So we're <laughs> right next to you. you know, right there on the, on the front row. And, <laughs> You know, you, they basically threaten you with your life that do not cross onto the court, you know. <laughs> well, we're sitting next to T. Moran, and he is a hoot. I mean, that guy is unbelievable to sit and watch a game with, much less watch his son who's playing. They're playing the Warriors. Obviously, everybody's excited for this game. And that particular night, you guys will remember, I mean, Memphis had several highlight plays yeah. and there were several alley-oop plays and we would jump up and high five and we were hooting and hollering. And I'm a Golden State Warrior fan. Like I was there to watch Golden State, but I all of a sudden was in love with this grizzly story. And so I got uh, security came down and got on me once because I crossed onto the floor. <laughs> and then another alley-oop came, I jumped up, I high five. All of a sudden this man in this suit with, you know, like, you know, I, uh, sunglasses on and the, and the, <laughs> the little talky thing on, on his wrist comes down and sees me. 
and was like, sir, if you even come close to that line again, you're getting thrown out of the gym tonight. Wow. And, and, you know, so Team Morant was trying to take up for me. Like, hey, this is my good friend, my new friend, Drew. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and the guy said, I don't care if it's Michael Jordan. He's getting thrown out of the gym. <laughs> See, there are struggles with having those good seats. There, there, are. there are struggles. There are. <laughs> also, in that, right. also, yeah. also in that game, right in front of Zach and I and where Drew was, one of the referees, it was not her, her fault. She was running, had her back turned, and Clay Thompson was running, had his head turned. She tripped, or she, Clay tripped over her. Mm. And fe- uh, that was right in front of us where that <laughs> oh, happened. Yeah. And Clay was not happy. Remember, that was probably only like his third or fourth game back. Mm. Right. Yeah. Uh, from his, you know, two years <laughs> with serious Achilles and ACL. And so he was not happy. <laughs> We're going to change gears a little bit and talk about adoption. Um, Zach, Zach had done some research on this, so we're going to throw it to Zach with his. I, I was just curious of how, how you guys uh, ended up in Uganda. Uh, we, we had a family here that was also looking at adoption there. And uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say settled on, on two boys, knowing that, you know, you have all girls and uh, just kind of hear that story of, uh, you know, how that all transpired. Yeah, two major forces God used to, to pull that story together. It started really in 06. When I landed at CPA, I was coaching a young man named Will Franklin Chapman. His parents are Stephen Curtis Chapman, musician, and, and his wife, Mary Beth. They have a huge adoption ministry called Show Hope. And so adoption being a foreign concept to me really growing up and never really connecting to anyone you know, in the foster care or, or adoptive world, this was a, our first exposure. And uh, really fell in love with their ministry. So God puts adoption on our heart. We're getting involved. We're starting to take some trips. We're financially supporting, praying for our dear friends that are in this world. Well, in 2008 slash nine, we began to support a ministry in Uganda, a a young girl from Brentwood named Katie Davis, who went on to become a New York Times bestseller, wrote a book called Kisses from Katie. Um, Uh launched a ministry, a feeding and educational ministry in Jinja, Uganda. And uh, we fell in love with what she was doing. We could not believe the step in faith that an 18, 19 year old little girl would do after graduating from high school and uh, began to financially support, took trips there. So we have this force of show hope in the Chapman family uh, in terms of adoption that God brought to our, our story. And then, you know, we fell in love geographically with this part of the world through Katie Davis and what she was doing. And so as we just began to pray about like, really God, what, what kind of impact would you really want us to have in this 150 million orphan crisis that exists in our world today? And we clearly heard God say, I, I, you know, I don't know how the Maddoxes can make a difference in 150 million, but I know how the Maddoxes can make a difference. And there's two that need to, that are, you know, uh, designed to come join your family. And so all of that to say, we didn't really know how it was all going to shape out, but my daughter, Emma, my oldest of, of my five kids, uh, began to pray for her two brothers. And, um, and so as, as fate would have it, or as God would have it, uh, Patrick and Nicholas were um, uh, assigned or identified to, to come join and be a part of our family from a, an orphanage in Jinja, Uganda. And uh, that whole story was mind-blowing how God opened doors, brought people to be a part of that story. I mean, it took governmental officials to move and, and cut through red tape. You know, the 
the judicial system that things that had to move um, from a legal standpoint. It's, it's not the easiest of things to do, but God really moved. And um, yeah, so in December 15th, 2010, we landed back in the United States with our, our two sons, Patrick and Nicholas, uh, which completed our family. We knew there was a void and, and a vacancy in our family. And those two boys were, were what completed the Maddox house. How about this cool, cool part to the story? So Emma, who was praying for her two brothers, she's teaching right now in Jinji, Uganda this summer at a wow. school uh, uh, That's awesome. as an as a educational major from, um, from Sanford University. I, I was going to ask, has anybody been back? But I guess the, the oldest sister is there now. Yeah, so we, we support Katie. Uh, there's other um, uh, opportunities and ministries that we support there. Of course, Amani Baby Cottage, where our boys were from, but Love One, which is uh, a huge ministry there, uh, the Marinick family and Thomas Rhett and his wife, Lauren, we support them and uh, obviously show hope and, and then what Katie's doing with the Mazima Ministries as well. What, what did your sons come from? Like, what were their living conditions in Uganda? Obviously not as, as, you know, uh, sophisticated as what they came to here in America and how was that transition for them? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they were at a Christian orphanage in Jinji, Uganda, but, um, being cared for as best as you can care for that much need. Um, Patrick slept on a bed. He's a little bit older than Nicholas. They're still in the same grade, but Patrick's a little bit older and Nicholas slept on a trundle beneath his bed. And so when we put it in and felt called to adopt two boys, they said, these two boys have to be together forever. They're like uh, a hand in glove, an old married couple that they're just best of friends. They're complete opposites, but they're best of friends and, and they complement each other. And so um, all of that to say, I, I think it was a shock to their system coming here. I mean, obviously every, they never had been on a bus, much less an airplane. They're less than two years old. I mean, they, I think they cried for the first week. I mean, you know, they, everything in their life had been disrupted. Who are these people? Now we had spent weeks there trying to make sure we bonded with them the best way we could, but you know, everything in their life's being disrupted and flipped upside down. And so I think this, though, them having each other and their special relationship allowed for their transition into our house to be much smoother and much faster than our other friends that have adopted, you know, from other parts of the world. When, when you said Emma had been praying for her two older or two, two brothers, did you always know that you were after or sought after two to adopt or it was kind of a package deal? Yeah. I, 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 I think we began to pray and knew that God had called us to adopt, but she kept praying for two brothers. So I, it was, <laughs> it just was, was something. And, you know, when you go in with your kids at night, you're doing bedtime prayers and she's praying for, I was like, I kept looking at my wife, like she's staying two every time. Are you, are you telling her something I'm not telling her? Like, where is that coming from? And so she was like, no, honestly, that she, clearly was praying for two two brothers i don't know where that got deposited into her little heart but uh she really felt like god had called us to adopt two and you know now just so deeply thankful can't imagine life without either one of them one absent of the other would it wouldn't be this it wouldn't be the same you know those those were our two sons that were forever supposed to be a part of our family drew we want to talk a little bit about your book elevated and 
just kind of, you know, can you tell us what it's about and um, kind of the inspiration behind, you know, writing a book? I know you wrote it with a partner, but, you know, it's one thing to write a book. It's another thing to write a good book that sells and, you know, you become a best-selling author. So can you tell us a little bit about Elevated? Yeah, and, and we, we wrote the follow-up. It's called Excavated as well. So now we've written two, two books as well. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those things. Uh, I really believe for my own journey, um, I just have a, a, a dream board and I wanted to write a book. Just got to put that. It was just something I wanted to go through the discipline of what it meant um, to try to be stretched, to be pulled, to be inspired, to be energized. Uh, to put what's in my, my heart and in my mind, in my experiences uh, down on pages. Um, I, I love to read. I love to grow in my learning. Um, I try to read uh, as many books as I can um, every year. Uh, I, love to, I love to learn. I love all types of learning. And so Elevated was the, the, the most simple way I can describe it is we basically took 50 leadership characteristics that we believed the greats all had in common. We whiteboarded on a board over a hundred attributes and we settled on 50. I don't know why 50, 50 was just the number we decided to do. And so what we did was uh, the blueprint was I'm a journaler. I write every day anyway. Uh, I have journals just stacked over here over the years of just, you know, pages that I've written. And uh, so we, we decided to take 50 straight days and journal about one of those leadership attributes. What makes great people great? What makes them elevate others around them? What makes them elevate in their performance? What makes them elevate their company? They're a songwriter. What makes them elevate in their profession? And we just started to study them. We started to read articles and, and pull data or just things that I had learned over the course of my life. Maybe it was a personal experience or somebody I had met or somebody made an impression on me. And so for 50 straight days, we wrote I wrote a journal entry. My co-author, uh, Virgil Herring, wrote a journal entry. And then in the book, there's a blank page for you to write, you know, whatever comes on your heart to help prompt you where our book becomes your book. Uh, I want it to be a practical workbook to really challenge and, and encourage you in your journey. And so that's what we did. So then we followed up with Excavated during uh, 2020, during COVID. Uh, I really felt, um, you know, like God said, Drew, this is a hard time. And obviously, if you read the statistics, it was a hard time for a lot of people. And we're still seeing the effect of that mental, emotional uh, uh, illness is, is on the rise. I mean, depression, stress, anxiety really struggle, um, you know, right now. And so what we did was take 50 words that were viewed or are viewed as kind of more in a negative light, fear, shame, guilt, doubt, uncertainty, hardship. And we flipped it, um, how you could flip it and really how digging deeper with a word that may reside with you in a negative sense could actually be your biggest blessing in taking you to dig deeper to go further. And I'm writing up right now, I'm, uh, I'm writing my, my next uh, two books as well. So I'm gonna, I'm writing uh, three and four as we speak. Uh, I write every day, I post a blog for our company here every single morning uh, uh, around uh, human development, leadership development, people development, team development, you know, just whatever's on my heart. And uh, I post a blog, so I'm writing for 365 straight days. And so I'm building out that content as we speak. Writing one book, he conquered that. He's like, this is too easy. I'm going to write two at a time, <laughs> two at a time. <laughs> I think somebody would get mad 
at us if they listen to this and we did not talk a little bit about you coaching basketball because you have you have a unique coaching philosophy compared to a lot of other coaches and something I heard you say once was your teams have been player oriented not coach oriented a lot of basketball teams especially younger you know middle school maybe high school coaches the coach calls a play. The players go out there and try and run that play. Your philosophy philosophy was more of let's create a framework of what we want to do and let the players go out there and be involved, make decisions, react to what's happening in the game, and kind of, you know, they're not looking to the sidelines every time down the floor. Much more fluidity, much more uh, creative for the players I would, as a basketball player, would be more fun, I would think, um, because I'm doing, you know, being creative, playing basketball, what we all do in the backyard <laughs> before we ever join a basketball team. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your philosophy and how you did things? Yeah, I, I mean, I, gosh, that, that was a great description. That's exactly what we were trying to do. We call it boundary freedom. Um, and you know, it, it let us have enormous success. Obviously, you got to have great players that are that are talented and skilled. But what we what we believed was that team development and player development happened in practice, and the games should be the most enjoyable aspect of what they get to do in their high school careers. Mm -hmm. And if that is a painful experience or fear based experience, then I have missed the mark. That should just be the icing on the cake to all of the hard work that they have to endure. Now we work like crazy. Don't get me wrong. We're highly disciplined. We work hard. We expect a lot. Our practices were very strenuous. We never stopped. There was a practice methodology that I applied to it as well. But when we got to the game, I wanted them to have boundary freedom. Go use your God-given abilities to go make plays that you were created to do. You know, every single day we as human beings and players that are 15, 18 year olds are asking this question, uh, do I have what it takes? They're always asking that question. They're always making that assessment. They're always looking around. It's a checks and balance system. It's a make or miss system. And they're always seeing if they're living up to it. And so what I wanted the games to be was an empowerment exercise where I deposit four words into their being that I believe in you. I wanted them to truly feel that. I didn't want them taking a shot, looking over the sideline, worrying if somebody was going to check in for them. They made a mistake. Like, man, if we make a mistake, it just better be because you're trying to make a play and you're trying to go as hard as you can go. Now, if it's a selfish play or something, then that's a different conversation. But if you're, make, if you're making a mistake because you're going as hard as you can go, or you're trying to make a play, or you saw something, I, I want you to have the freedom to go do that. And so what it translated to was enormous success. We, we, were, we were blessed to win more games than we deserve. But, um, you know, not only that, I think our kids really enjoyed getting to play in that experience and in that environment. As far as your your time at at CPA, and um, I know that you're still associated the, the Nike camps and everything, Nike select teams that you um, um, do. You, uh, I know you never say never, but do you still have that itch to coach? Yeah, I, I don't think that will ever. Uh, be detached from me. You know, I, I, I believe coaching's in my lifeblood. I loved coaching at camps when I was a teenager. Um, you know, it's something that's been a part of my story for a long, long time. 
Now, whether that environment looks like uh, a high school basketball program or whether it looks like uh, being a part of a, a big corporation or whether it looks like coaching an AU program or a camp or a clinic or, you know, who knows what the future holds. But yes, I, I do believe, um, you know, coaching will forever be a part of anything that, that I'm interested in doing. Sure. And part of your basketball coaching philosophy, again, translates over into an adult world, for lack of a better term, of, you know, set your boundaries and then, you know, there's going to be chaos, there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be something bad that happens, but you can overcome that with, you know, being prepared before you get somewhere, working hard when you get there and kind of, uh, you know, making up for, for things that we can't control. You talked about it earlier. There's a lot of things we cannot control that are going to come against us, but we can um, have the freedom to act and overcome the adversity we face where, wherever we happen to face it. And that's why I love basketball so much, because I believe um, there's no more applicable life skill than what basketball creates to me. Now, I love all sports. Uh, there's different aspects from sports uh, that you can pull from. But specifically, as it relates to basketball and the sport that I love, um, is the game is played in transition. And we don't have uh, time for the play to end and we go for 30 second huddles and we come back and try to do it better. So you're always in sub-second response times answering the question of now what and so what. What just happened, I have to process it really, really quickly, and I've got to be able to respond to what happened. Not react, not react in terms of an emotional spike, but respond because I've done the work and it's premeditated, I'm prepared for what the moment presents. There's a difference in a response and a reaction. And so when it comes time to answer the question, now what, so what, you've got to be able to move to the next play, next shot. Believe the next opportunity has a chance to be better than the one before. Another thing I've heard you talk about, and this is this really struck me, you did not cut players when you were coaching. Um, and, uh, you know, you were – I heard you talk about your practice plans, and, and I'm going to let you expound on all of that and let – you explained how many kids you had at practice and all that kind of stuff, but just the detail that you had to put into practice every single day before practice started that a lot of coaches will, will keep it in the coach world. Don't do uh, what, you know, they might've had bad instruction when they were a player and they carry that over. They don't know a better way, but we're here to, to give new ideas and better ideas a little bit, but can you talk about why you didn't cut players and what you did in a, a gym full of kids. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it goes back to kind of my life of being set up of viewing people as a parable of talents. You know, just culture will tell you how many stars by your name on a recruiting site somehow makes you more significant than the guy sitting next to you. Um, and so what we wanted to try to be was countercultural. We wanted them to know that the locker room and the, and the gym was a safe environment. Uh, the locker room to, for so many people is where, you know, hazing and bullying had been done and it's not a safe environment. I had been in um, uh, video rooms where a coach would berate, you know, players and it wasn't a safe environment. A gym was a fear-based environment. And so what I wanted to create was life's hard enough. These kids are walking around all day long in the hallways, classrooms, social pressures, family dynamics, just the world at large. Um, so what we wanted to do was try to create a, an all-comers safe environment where, once again, five, two, or one, it didn't matter. You have a strength, you have a gift, 
you have value, and this is an environment where you can learn to, to try to, to make an investment so that that would flourish in every aspect of your life as, as uh, you know, we use this basketball um, program as a development system for that. And so once again, you know, it was so funny when John Calipari or, or Billy Donovan or those guys, we, we've had five-star players, you know, we've had Mr. Basketballs and we, got, we had over 50 players in 15, 50, uh, 15 years going to play college athletics. So we've had those level guys, but we've also had guys that, um, you know, would have been cut from every program in, in the mid-state. And so those, those guys would come in our, our gym and they would be there to obviously see the best player. And they would be like, are y'all practicing with the middle school today? I'm like, <laughs> no, coach, this is, this is what, you know, our, our program is about. This is what we're trying to do with our program. And it was amazing to watch those guys like become enlightened that basketball could be done that way, that it didn't have to be done as the culture defines it to look like that it truly could be a place where, where everyone was welcome. And that's what we were trying to do. And you kind of had a, a detailed uh, practice plan for each kid or, you know, a small group of kids, but then the team as a whole, correct? Yeah. And, and, and once again, you got to have an incredible staff and I always had, I mean, the coaches that I was fortunate to serve alongside with, um, you know, I tried to empower them as well. I tried to prepare uh, them as well. Uh, so one day they would want to be, you know, a head coach or if that's what they wanted to do. And so you got to have an incredible staff, first of all, that you're able to trust and empower them to lead segments or lead units or lead teams or skill development. And then, yeah, so we literally per kid or per group, per minute, per coach uh, would literally identify and assign that minute allocation that you had every afternoon. And it led me to be a better coach because, you know, you get, you got to have, uh, you got to have clarity around what you're doing. You got to have conviction and truly believe it and make sure everybody in the room believes it. And then therefore you go and have commitment to it. And so clarity, conviction, commitment. And then once we had that, we felt like, you know, the kids were empowered, the coaches were empowered and we were all better for it because we knew exactly what the expectation was by the minute for what was expected of us. That's and that's that's kind of what I was referring to earlier of just the the commitment to plan that before, you know, you can't just show up and make it up in the moment, you know, well, let's run these drills we run every single day and <laughs> we're just going to kill the next hour and a half and we'll go home. You know, it's purposely being better and helping others to be better. I, that struck me greatly when I heard that. Well, I, if, if I'm ever putting the day or the moment or the experience on cruise control or autopilot, then then that's that's a sign of disrespect to the people I'm with. Uh, they are a value and I want to honor their time and I want to honor their value. And I want to make sure that we're doing that. And even through our preparation and thinking through by the minute, by the kid, by the coach, that disposits honor and value into, you know, them being a, a, a team member and a, and a culture member. And you touched on it, you know, that's setting them up for life, uh, you know, changing their mindset that they, they are going to be productive. They are important no matter their position on the team. When they graduate school, they're on a work team. No matter the pecking order within wherever you are, you are still valuable and still important and still can contribute something to the group. Well, and, you know, just we as society, and it's not – this is well-documented 
Joe Ehrman talks about this in Season of Life, Inside Out Coaching, if you guys are familiar with, with his story. But he talks about the three false identities of manhood and begins on the playground in elementary school, that whoever you know, was the best on the playground somehow, somehow had more value. And then it moves into teenage years. It's who you're dating or popularity and those kind of things. And then in, in adulthood, it's about how much money you make, what titles by your name, how many followers you have, and all those kind of things. That's how value is assigned. And so what we're trying to do is swim upstream against that and say, that's not how value is defined. Value is you were divinely created. You were created for a relationship and you are an essential part of the cause that we're trying to set out as a group uh, to go and attack. Sorry, Drew, but Daniel has made the reference of, you know, you're not as, you know, your ability to play in the SEC and everything like that. Uh, these these three gentlemen here at this table weren't on the court that uh, that uh, <laughs> that faithful those, those faithful two nights that I saw up up close and personal. He he has he had all the tools that you need to play in the SEC. So don't don't let him slide himself or you slide himself because I I was there. I witnessed it firsthand. <laughs> Well, Drew, we finish every episode with a Bible verse, and Stefano's got it today. do. So um, just in my quiet time, I've just been going through um, 2 Timothy. So this um, this verse talks about encouragement. Obviously, um, Paul encouraging Timothy. I think it was uh, 2 Timothy was his last letter. So um, picks up in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. I'll read 8 and 9. So it says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, sharing suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So just a reminder for us to not be ashamed to share the word. You never know um, in passing just what a good word will do for people and um in this world these dark times that we have people need that encouragement so just thank you drew for all that you've done and just coaching the right way uh, through your camps and the many athletes that you've impacted just uh thank you for what you've for for what you've done for this this city of nashville and beyond i i just uh am very honored that you guys that we I'm thankful let me say that that our stories collided on that Memphis night in that gym and uh just honored you would ask me and thank you for having me on today yeah well you know our, our relationship really started back in the mid-90s we just didn't know it yet <laughs> Ron wasn't born yet yeah I was in like kindergarten he's just a little baby he's just a baby <laughs> Really, really appreciate it, guys. And anything that I can ever do for you, don't hesitate to call. You got the contact info now. Yeah. <laughs> and we know he's going to say yes. <laughs> That's right. Well, Drew, again, thank you so much for, for coming on. Great, great stuff. Uh, you can find CoachDrewMaddox.com. You can also find Drew on Instagram. Check out some of the great stuff he posts on there as well. But Drew, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on, and uh, we really enjoyed it. Thank you guys again. And y'all have a have a blessed rest of your day and rest of your week. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to GPS to God. We'll catch you again next week. And just remember, we love you, but God loves you more. We hope you are enjoying GPS to God. Rate, review, and subscribe across every platform you use. Help us spread the word by telling your friends and family to watch, listen, and subscribe.